How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this evening, we need to make sure we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then uh, I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together to study your word this evening. We thank you for the freedom we have in this nation. We pray that you would continue to provide for us in having that freedom, protect us. We pray for our military forces over in Iraq, especially those from this congregation that are serving over there. We pray that you would watch over them, protect them, bring them home safely to their families. And we pray for their families that you would continue to uh, watch over them and keep them safe while their loved ones are gone. Father, we thank you for this time to study your word. We pray that we might accept the challenge to have our thinking transformed and renewed by the teaching of your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Two weeks ago when I was in San Diego, I got a chance to go to the Institute for Creation Research. And while I was there, I went to the uh, bookstore and I picked up a bunch of catalogs for their books, and those are out there in the foyer, so if you want to pick one up and order some, any something you're interested in, going into some detail of evolution and creation that uh, I have just had an opportunity to touch on, then I recommend many things there. There's uh, also many books that your kids would be interested in, and if you have young children, they have books for all ages. Uh, if you have a teen, a book that I would recommend is... Uh, the book, The Bible Has the Answer by Henry Morris. And he has in there 155 frequently asked questions from everything from salvation to the reliability of the Bible, different doctrines in the scriptures. I picked that up when I was in college, I believe, and read through that. It was quite uh, helpful, interesting, a great resource tool to look up many things. Furthermore, there's other other books in here that some are more general in nature, uh, some are more specific. One that uh, John Morris just came out with is called uh, Hester at the Big Bang. I was just looking to see if it was in here, and that's another question and answer type of book that deals with uh, issues related to not just the Big Bang, but other areas of creation. There are a number of videos that are available. There are children's books that for, from young children all the way up. Uh, and I would encourage you to get those books and have them available for your, for your children. Books on dinosaurs, books on different creatures, books on the uh, Grand Canyon. And so there's a lot, of, uh, a lot of stuff there, but I recommend you grab a copy and thumb through it. Okay, let's open our Bibles this evening to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. And we'll begin our study on the next section in Genesis. Now when we get into the story of the temptation and the fall in Genesis 3, there is clearly a human viewpoint approach to the study of this section. Human viewpoint approaches usually want to relegate this to some form of myth and that it was written simply to explain how certain things came to be in history, how animals came to be a certain way, or perhaps why people wear clothes. Uh, It's basically thought of as just a story, and there's no real actual history here. However, if you take the time to compare what is said here in just seven short verses with, for example, a myth such as Pandora's box, which was a Greek myth used to to, uh, teach about the origin of uh, evil, 
you, you see there are certain elements in myths that, the, that are, are similar to all the different myths, whether you're talking about an ancient Near Eastern myth or an, an Asian myth or uh, <clears throat> Greek myth. They, they go on and on. The creature, there's a certain amount of fantastic information in there that just goes beyond credibility. Whereas when you look at the biblical story of the fall and the introduction of evil into the human race, it's a very concise episode. It is the, the Holy Spirit always uses an economy of words and doesn't get into a lot of extraneous detail that would satisfy the curiosity of most of us. I mean, if you look at the story of the temptation the fall of just face value, and you think about it, what's the first thing that comes into your mind? You mean the snake's talking? I mean, let, let's let's back up a minute. You've been around the Bible too long if you don't have that question in your mind right off the bat. Here is a snake that is talking to Eve, and the serpent doesn't even surprise her. When the serpent starts talking to her, she doesn't seem to be surprised. There are more questions raised by the seven verses, perhaps, than are actually answered. And that is remarkably different from any of the other um, from any mythological approaches. Another attempt is to take this as, or sort of spiritualize the story, once again rejecting the fact that it would be a literal historical event and just thinking that it is merely representational. At this point, all sorts of odd explanations come, in, come to play. For example, one writer would say that there's no real serpent. This is just sort of a uh, literary device to... Uh, explain this struggle going on inside of Eve's head as she wrestles with whether or not to eat. That's that's just expressed through through the serpent. Also, the allegorical approach is predominant, especially in Roman Catholic theology, at least from what I've run into, that the fruit really isn't literal. This just sort of represents sexual knowledge. And, of course, embedded is that, and that is the idea that somehow sex is inherently evil, and once they discovered sex, well, then everything just went downhill from there. Also sounds like a rather Freudian approach. But all of that refuses to take the Scriptures as a literal historical event that took place uh, approximately 5,000 years or 4,000 years before Christ. Now, when we came to the end of chapter 2 last time, I pointed out that there's really a shift that takes place between verse 24 and verse 25. The chapter break should come in verse 20, 25. And there we read the comment that they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Now, the reason we make the paragraph break between 24 and 25 is on the basis of vocabulary. On the basis of vocabulary, we have the word naked, which in the Hebrew is arumim. Arumim simply means to be naked. But the word is repeated when we get down to chapter 3, verse 7. In chapter 3, verse 7, the word is repeated, and there we discover that they're not only naked, but now it's a source of disgrace and shame and exposure and guilt. So this forms what is called an inclusio. An inclusio is a Latin term for it, the Latin term for uh, this figure of speech. Inclusio, and the Greek term for this was epanadiplosis, epana. Diplosis, E-P-A-N-A, E-P-A-N-A-D-I-P-L-O-S-I-S. Now, see, there's a new word for your vocabulary that you can go home and practice tonight. They both have the same idea. That is the repetition of a word or a phrase at the beginning of a section and at the end of a section. And what that does, it's like if you were in the field artillery in the army, that would be called bracketing, and that basically circles the topic, and by repeating material at the beginning and at the end, it emphasizes the material that comes in between. So it forms an inclusio here from Genesis 2.25 
to 3.7. So that becomes the main section. Now the emphasis, as we have already seen in chapter 2, is on the perfect environment created by God. God creates a perfect environment. He supplies all the needs for Adam and Isha. He creates everything for Adam before he creates him. He creates him. He brings the animals to him so that he can discover that he does not have a uh, counterpart or a helper that is uh, comparable to him. And then God causes a sleep on him, and he creates uh, Isha as his wife. So there is perfect environment. Thus, when we come to chapter 3 and we see the fall, the disobedience, we realize that it can't be blamed on insufficient information. And that's a sub-theme in this whole section, is the sufficiency of God and the rejection of God's sufficiency. So we see that, that the disobedience can't be blamed on a poor environment. It can't be blamed on being given insufficient information or that God provided insufficiently for Adam and Isha. It can't be blamed on family influences. It can't be blamed on social influences. It can't be blamed on education influences. It can only be blamed on the personal choice of the individuals involved. And thus, even though it's not written as an explanation of evil or a theodicy per se, it does give an answer as to how evil entered into the world. Because if we're going to be talking about a good God who's a righteous God who loves us, the question that comes up in many people's mind is, well, how can a loving God let all of these things happen? And the answer is right here in Genesis 3, 1 through 7. God created everything good. It was man who mucked everything up by making a disobedient and rebellious decision that at the beginning there is complete openness, there is an innocency, in a sense there is almost a naivete when it comes to evil. There is no awareness of what can uh, of the evil that can come from sexual manipulation and sexual distortion, and so they are naked and they are not ashamed. Now. The word ashamed is the Hebrew word bosh, and it means to fall into disgrace through failure. It has a, the idea of a sense of guilt over failure, as well as the ideas of confusion, dismay, and embarrassment. So none of these things are present there. There is nothing but one might say pure optimism and hope. Everything is positively good. The man and the woman are not created neutral. They are created with the positive righteousness of God because they are created in his image. However, it is an untested righteousness. The test is whether or not they will follow God's instructions related to the prohibition of the of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, when we look at this beginning, we see in verse 25 that they are both naked, arumim, A-R-U-M-M-I-M. And that's a plural form of a cognate noun. It sounds the same, looks the same as the word we run into in verse 1 describing the serpent, that the serpent is the craftiest or the most subtle or the wiliest creature of the beasts of the field that God created. And you can see the similarity in the two in the two words, even though you can't read Hebrew. You can see the transliteration, and the word translated crafty or subtle or wily is the Hebrew word arum. So obviously the writer is making a point here. He has a pun going here to draw our attention to the fact that man is created. He's unashamed. There is integrity in both the man and the woman. And yet the serpent, when he comes along by this play on words, the author is indicating that it is this very integrity of the creature that is going to be the target of the serpent. And what we see in this section is that man moves from the innocent, uncorrupted uh, nakedness to vulnerable, shameful nakedness. He moves from integrity as one created in the untarnished image of God to guilt 
and the corruption of that image of God. This is one of the most dramatic stories in all of Scripture, and it is covered in such sparsity that we have to take some time to develop what happens. It is great drama, and it is told with tremendous finesse. So in verse 1 we read, Now the serpent. Now the serpent. And the serpent, the structure of the grammar here at the beginning uses the, the Hebrew conjunction vav plus a noun, which is always a disjunctive idea. So it's bringing out a contrast. And the contrast is with that which is before, the, the naked man and woman who have integrity, who are unashamed, are contrasted with the serpent who is more cunning. And the word there for serpent is the Hebrew word nachash, N-A-C-H-A-S-H. Nachash, and this is the normal word for serpent or snake, but it also has some other very interesting uses. For example, in Isaiah 27, verse 1, we're told, In that day the Lord with his severe sword, great and strong, will punish Leviathan, the fleeing what? The fleeing serpent. Leviathan, that twisted what? That twisted serpent. And he will slay the reptile that is in the sea. Now, what in the world is going on here? Well, I'm not going to take the time now to go through all of the sub-themes that go through the Old Testament related to two mythological creatures, Rahab and Leviathan. But Leviathan is pictured as a serpent, as a, but this isn't your normal serpent. So when we think of Nahash and the serpent or the snake in the garden, there's a couple of things we need to pay attention to. Number one, this is used to describe a mighty sea creature that in some past, in many passages in the Old King James was translated as a dragon. This is a huge creature, a dinosaur type of creature. So it's a huge reptilian creature that is, uh, pictured also in Revelation. In Revelation 12.9 we read, so the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old, called the devil and Satan. Revelation 12.9, the judgment on the devil and Satan, who is pictured as a dragon, is the fulfillment of Isaiah 27.1. In that day, that is that future day, the Lord with his severe sword will punish Leviathan the fleeing serpent, Leviathan that twisted serpent. And what happens in Old Testament imagery, in Hebrew imagery, is that they reached back into their past and picked up this this early Israelite myth that did not have anything to do with Scripture. That was a, sort of a, a, a their their version of a creation myth, and they used that imagery of Leviathan in his struggle against and revolt against God, and so Leviathan becomes a picture of Satan in his commentary on Genesis. A Jewish scholar by the name of Umberto Casuto makes the following statement. He says, As I have already stated previously, there existed among them, that is among the Jews, an ancient poetic tradition that told of the revolt of the prince of the sea against God. The Israelite version of the Eastern legends concerning the battles between the great gods and the god of the sea in the era of creation. Both the Israelites and the Gentiles used to relate that the sea and its confederates, the rivers, had many helpers like the dragon or dragons, Leviathan the fleeing serpent, Leviathan the twisting serpent, and other monsters and animals. Now, what he is saying is that in the ancient world, you not only had uh, the Jews who... Here's the rough outline of the Mediterranean... Eastern Mediterranean, here's, here's Israel, but also you have the Babylonians over here in what is now uh, Iraq. You have the Babylonians, you have the Assyrians that were a little further north. You have the Assyrians, you have the Arameans or the Syrians, modern Syrians over here. You have the Egyptians down to the south. And all of these ancient peoples had a mythology where they have, the, in their creation mythology, 
a revolt of the sea against their god or gods. And in this revolt of the sea, that's why the sea was always pictured as that which was uncontrolled. Remember when I was back in Genesis 1-2 and we talked about the, the Spirit of God hovered over the, the depths? That, I said that word has, always has this negative connotation of the uncontrolled, rebellious sea, the salt sea. And there is no salt sea in the future creation. And so in the, remember our, our thesis is that mythology, mythology has some sort of remnant memory of what truly happened. It does, it doesn't tell us what happened, but these ancient mythologies are corrupt, corroded versions of what had actually happened. And so embedded in these, these ancient legends is the idea that there is this primeval revolt among the gods, which is comparable to the angels, and this revolt is led by a creature called Leviathan. And this Leviathan is not a simple snake like the ones you scare up out working in your garden or some uh, diamondback rattlesnake out in West Texas, but this is more like a dragon type of creature. So when you just look at a picture of a dragon, think about how much a dragon might resemble a dinosaur. So when we look at this, we, we think about what kind of creature this is in the garden, and we think that it's Nahash, but it's not just the simple serpent. I think that it's, it's much more than that because there are other references to this creature that have him in a much more, uh, much larger creature, a much more dynamic role. Well, whether he is small or large, we can't tell. I just wanted to pull together some of the ideas here. Nevertheless, the serpent is the symbol and the picture of the one who led the revolt against God in eternity past. Now, this creature is said to be uh, Arum. He is more cunning. He is Arum, which means cunning, crafty, or subtle. And that indicates that the knowledge that the serpent had was insightful when it came to watching the woman. So he doesn't just show up on, on uh, creation day plus one. He sits back and he observes. Satan, remember, is one of the most brilliant creatures that ever existed on the planet. I mean, and that ever came from the hand of God. He is absolutely brilliant. He is more brilliant than any other creature that was ever created. And he's been sitting back and observing the relationship between the woman and the man, and he has decided on the most effective course of action. It is their naivete, their ignorance of good and evil. And remember, good and evil here is not a contrast between good versus evil. I want you to get that out of your head right now. This is not a contrast between good versus evil. The word here is not talking about righteousness. The word here is talking about good and evil, good in terms of human good, and evil in terms of sin. Now, the word evil can also be applied in some places in Scripture to that which appears to be good but is really destructive. But in many, many places in the, New Te- in, the, uh, in the Old Testament, the word evil relates to that which is sinful. So we have here that they don't know either good or evil, good being counterfeit good or human good and evil being sin. They know neither one because they're manifesting the per- perfect righteousness of God. And so the contrast here is that they, know, they don't know good or evil yet. They are in a state of somewhat naivete as far as evil is concerned, and they are unaware of their own vulnerability. They're unaware of how they can be taken advantage of, and they're unaware, they're inexperienced with the consequences of sin, evil, and rebellion. So the use of the cognate here is to focus the mind of the reader on the target being the integrity of the man. And the serpent decides that the woman is the most likely target 
of success. Now the next thing we see here is that the serpent is more cunning than any beast of the field. And I want to make a point of that because if you go back and you look at Genesis 1, 24 and 25, it talks about God creating the beasts of the earth. And then when I came to Genesis chapter 2 and we were looking at what took place on that sixth day that God created Adam and then he brought forth the beasts of the field, there's... People try to make a contrast between the creation explained in chapter 2 and the creation explained in chapter 1. And the difference is that he's talking about two different categories of beasts, and the term beast of the field is a term that relates to the domesticatable animals that exist in the garden. For example, there were sheep in the garden. We can infer that from the sacrifice that takes place in chapter at the end of chapter 3 after there is sent. A sheep is one of the greatest uh, illustrations of the falsity of evolutionary theory because the sheep cannot survive on its own. A sheep can only survive if there are people there to take care of the sheep because sheep are so stupid. So if you didn't have people around to take care of sheep, sheep never would have developed. Well, there were various other kinds of creatures. Now, I'm not talking about, remember, they don't have species yet. They're just the general kind, so they aren't as numerous as all the different variations that we have today. And remember, variations don't prove evolution. Variations in in-kind are not the same as, as evolution from one kind to another. You know, whether you're talking about a poodle or a coyote or a wolf or a German shepherd or a dachshund, they're all from the dog kind. They, they, they vary only because there are certain uh, speci- uh, speciation changes that take place over time, really as an effect of the degradation from the fall. So the beast of the field indicates that this serpent lived in the garden and that this was a domesticatable animal and had some sort of regular concourse with a, a Adam and Isha. This suggests why there was no real surprise when it started talking. Now, we know that certain changes took place after the fall. One of those obvious physiological changes was that the serpent was to crawl on its on its guts. Furthermore, it seems that the, the serpent had some vocal ability in some sense, or maybe this happens rather early and caught the woman off guard. We don't know. That is just one of those enigmas in the passage. But the serpent speaks because it is indwelt by Satan. The serpent speaks because it is indwelt by Satan. But perhaps there was some vocal ability. I don't know. It just All these questions are left. We'll have to ask the Lord about those when we get to heaven. But this isn't an episode like with Balaam's ass. When Balaam's donkey starts to talk to him, that is uh, a special ability given to that donkey. This is the uh, this is Satan dwelling the donkey and speaking through the donkey. Now the identification of this serpent goes back to is is not mentioned. We're not introduced to Satan in this passage, but God does give us a clue as to how this started in two chapters in the Old Testament, Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14. So hold your place there in Genesis 3, and let's just briefly look at these other two passages, Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14. Now if you look at Ezekiel 28, if you go to the first verse, There is a message from the Lord. The word of the Lord came to me again, saying, Son of man, say to the prince of Tyre. And the first part of this funeral dirge is is in reference to the prince of Tyre. But there's a change in verse 12. There's a second part to this lamentation or funeral dirge. And in verse 12 we read, Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre. Now we know from extra biblical data that there was a leader in Tyre, but the king of Tyre is really the Amenaz Gris, the power behind the throne. 
Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre, because the things that are said of the king of Tyre could never be said of any human king, especially any human king in Tyre. Now, this passage is coming under a tremendous amount of attack today by all kinds of liberals, has for years for liberals saying this couldn't refer to Satan, it refers to some myth, it refers to some ancient Near Eastern leader whom they can never identify. And it is beginning to influence a number of evangelicals. And unfortunately, several of the more recent study Bibles, the one which I like for other reasons, the Thomas Nelson Study Bible, which I recommend, follows this. Several other study Bibles follow this. And they argue that this cannot refer to and does not refer to the fall of Satan. The problem is, if you read, and about two years ago I did extensive scholarly research on all of the various positions on this on this particular passage and the interpretation of this passage, and even though you have the these various scholars making the contention that there is a this is basically a borrowing of some ancient Near Eastern myth or some Canaanite myth. No ancient Near Eastern or Canaanite myth has ever been discovered that even comes close to what's mentioned in this passage. In other words, it is just a rejection of what the word the, the word indicates. And if you take this out of the scriptures, you're all it has damaging theological consequences because it opens the Bible up to an eternal dualism. Because if this doesn't tell us about the origin of sin in the universe, then nowhere do we have anything telling us about the origin of sin or evil in the universe. And so there's nothing to indicate that it had a beginning anywhere. Now, here we see that the, this creature, the king of Tyre, is the seal of perfection. That was never said of any human being. Full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. The, the adjectives here just mount up describing the perfection of this creature. Then in verse 13 we read, You were in Eden, the garden of God. Now, this is not talking about the Eden of Genesis 2. This is talking about the Eden that existed on the earth prior to Genesis 1-2 because the description of Eden here doesn't match the Eden of Genesis 2. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. And then it lists various uh, precious and semi-precious stones. And these, if you were a Jew reading this, the image that would come into your, your head would be a picture of the high priest and the breastplate, the uh, ephod of the high priest that had these precious and semi-precious stones on it. Now, the Jewish high priest had 12 stones on it for each of the 12 tribes, and there are only nine stones mentioned here. Furthermore, there's a reference to the musical ability of this creature in the last part of 13. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. You, verse 14, you were the anointed cherub who covers. Covers what? Covers the throne of God. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created. See, once again, it repeats this idea of sinless perfection that this cannot be a human king. And then it goes on to say, By the abundance of your trading, see, Tyre was a major center for commerce and trade. And so it uses that imagery that the apparently this creature, and this is talking about Lucifer before the fall, that Lucifer traded on his influence. And, and the idea that he was the anointed cherub indicates something about a priestly role and apparently, we derive from this text, we can't be dogmatic, he had some sort of priestly function in relationship to the angels. And instead of receiving the worship for God, he wanted all that worship for himself. And so, verse 17, your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor, and I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings that they might gaze upon you. That relates to his judgment. Now, let's turn back and see the details of that sin, his heart being lifted up, in Isaiah chapter 14. 
Isaiah chapter 14, which is a prophecy about the future fall of the king of Babylon. Now think about this. This Isaiah 14 is written in the 7th century B.C., but it's looking forward to an event when this king is going to be judged. And this actually takes place at the second coming of Christ. So the vantage point is looking to the future, but it's looking to a point in the future that looks back on the immediate uh, judgment that just took place on this king. How you're fallen from heaven, O Lucifer. Now, this is where we get the name Lucifer. The word does not mean is not Lucifer in the original. That comes from the concept of light. It's um, a, it, The Hebrew word has the idea of, of bright and morning star. And it's oh, bright and morning star, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. See, when did he weaken the nations? All through human history. He weakened the nations, culminating in their final weakness during the tribulation period. You who weakened the nations, notice it's past tense, it's over with. For you have said in your heart, so it's looking at this time and reflecting back on the original fall. I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. That is the term for the angels. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation, that is to rule over the assembly of the angels. On the farthest sides of the north, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. Clouds always speaks of the glory of God. He is going to be more uh, glorious than God. I will be like the Most High. These five I wills summarize Satan's arrogance and his fall. And the conclusion is in verse 15, Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol to the lowest depths of the pit. And verse 16, Those who see you will gaze at you and consider you, saying, Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook the kingdoms? So it's looking forward to the time of his judgment and realizing that when he is judged, people will look at him and ridicule him and wonder how they could have been misled by this creature. So this is the origin of Satan, the origin of sin in the universe, and man is created to resolve the angelic conflict. After Satan fell, he took one-third of the angels with him. Those angels led or went with him in revolt against God, and eventually God judged those angels. And in that judgment, Satan challenge the integrity of God. Now, we don't have specific scripture on that, but we infer it from the fact that it is in Genesis 3 that the uh, the uh, serpent challenges the integrity of God. This seems to be his modus operandi throughout history is to challenge and attack the integrity of God and the goodness of God. And along with that, Satan wants a chance to prove that he, the creature, can successfully rule creation apart from the Creator. And so God, in uh, grace, is demonstrating that the the, the creature cannot live independently from the Creator, and that the creature... That the, when the creature does that, the result is always destruction. It doesn't matter what the creature does. It may not be a sin of any consequence. It may not be an act of any consequence. It may be an act that no one would classify as something that's moral or immoral. Think about it. Eating a piece of fruit is not on your list of immoral actions. But it was an act of disobedience to God, the creature exerting his independence from God, that is the source of all the sin, suffering, death, misery, warfare, horrors, famine that we see. It comes from the creature acting independently from God. We think that it's just a minor thing, and we look at what happens here in Genesis 3, that this is just some some minor thing that, that they eat this piece of fruit, 
But look at what God has to do to reverse the consequences. He has to send his son to die on the cross to pay the penalty for sin. He has to go through thousands of years of earth history in order to bring about the resolution of the consequences of their actions in chapter 3. So God has created man in order to demonstrate his grace to demonstrate his integrity, to demonstrate through human history that the creature cannot live independently from the Creator. And so God works things out and allows things to develop through the course of human history so that every possible permutation of creaturely independence is going to be demonstrated to be fallacious, that God is going to show that it never works under any circumstances or any condition. So he allows Satan to test the creature. And the serpent takes first assault on the woman. And he does it in an extremely subtle manner. He is not going to go for that head-on frontal assault, but he is going to uh, carefully address the subject. Now, the question that he asks is, Has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And he doesn't say God's wrong, but by the way he forms the question, he is suggesting that somehow God is leaving something out, that somehow there's something good that God is withholding from the creature. And so by raising the question, has God said... The serpent is challenging the, the integrity of God. But there's something that is more insidious about this approach. By asking the question this way, he immediately puts the woman in a position of judging God. If she falls for the question, she puts herself in a position that's going to predetermine her defeat. And it's like this. God has said one thing. Here's the absolute. Here's the value. The absolute value is that if you eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, there will be certain death. The serpent is going to come along and say, no death. So there's competing truth claims. And what the serpent is saying to the woman is, you need to be the one to decide... Who's true? By buying into the question, she's elevating herself to a position where she's going to determine, where the creature is going to determine whether God's statement has ultimate value or the serpent's statement has ultimate value. It's like being asked, have you quit beating your wife yet? Well, however you answer that, you're in trouble. See, however she answers this question, she's in trouble. The solution is to turn her back on the serpent and to walk away. But by answering the serpent, she's already put herself into a trap that can go no in no other direction other than to culminate in her eating the fruit because she's elevating herself to a position of judging the veracity of God's statement. Now in verse 3, we see her answer. Verse 2, we see the beginning of her answer. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden. But notice she's leaving things out. See, God didn't say you can just eat from the trees of the garden. God said you can eat from all the trees in the garden except one. So she's leaving out that qualification of all. She just, she's, so she's beginning to diminish what God has said. She's diluting the word of God. We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, quote, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, God didn't say that. God said, you shall not eat it. But when she quotes God, not only does she add something, the idea of not touching it, But she also misstates the severity of the prohibition. When she says, you shall not eat it, she does it uh, 
she says uh, she she reduces the significance of that. It's not stated in as strong a prohibition as God originally stated it, which was uh, a statement of low plus the imperfect, and then she but but she diminishes it by adding the phrase lest you die, pen plus the imperfect cal imperfect of moat. So by changing the consequences from you shall certainly die to lest you die, she weakens the penalty. She gets the prohibition right, you shall not eat, but she adds to it, you shall not touch, but she diminishes the penalty just a little bit, just by the way she structures it, lest you die. It, it backs off of the absoluteness of the penalty just a little bit. So the changes that she, she makes dilutes God's word and weakens the mandate. But the serpent, interestingly enough, the serpent gets it right when he responds to her. In verse 4, the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. Now let me draw this up on the board. In the Hebrew, you have the negative plus an infinitive construct plus your imperfect tense verb. The normal way you would, you would write this in Hebrew is you would put the negative between the infinitive construct and the imperfect tense verb. You would put the, the uh, negative in between. But see, God said, you will certainly die, and he used that phrase of the infinitive construct plus the imperfect. And so rather than break that up, by putting the negative before that, that phrase, the serpent is making an extremely strong statement that God is wrong, and he said, you will certainly die, and I'm saying you will not certainly die. So he changes up the grammar in order to make sure the point is made that he is uh, 180 degrees opposite the statement of God. He is opposing what God said. So the serpent accurately states the penalty, but he rejects it. He says it's not real. And this is all part of the ongoing lie that man wants to buy into, that there are no consequences for disobedience, that we're going to get away with sin, that God's going to wink at sin, God's not going to see our sin, somehow we're going to get away with it, we're going to not ha- not, we won't have to face any consequences for our sin and for our disobedience. Furthermore, he goes on from a simple rejection of what God said, to an explanation that impugns the integrity of God. He says, For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, God's real motive is so you won't have everything he has. He is being selfish. He's not good. He doesn't have your best interests in heart. He's lied to you about the penalty. The only thing that's going to happen to you is you're going to become like God. And so he holds out the temptation of the promise of divinity. And this idea for the creature to be like God is the same temptation that he fell fell into. He wanted to be like God. And the irony here is that the woman who is like the man supposed to exercise dominion over these creatures is now going to be led by this subordinate animal to get to deity. It's a completely backward idea. She has been completely we have I don't know if you know this saying up here in Connecticut, but down in Texas we say you've been bum fuzzled. She's just had the wool pulled over her eyes. She's completely turned around, and now he is leading her thinking exactly where he wants her to go. And he impugns the very motives and integrity of God. It is furthermore an attack on the sufficiency of God's provision. He didn't tell you everything you needed to know about this. He left some really important facts out. And see, that is how Satan has always attacked 
the Word of God. There is always an assault on the truth of the Word of God. First, it's an assault on its integrity, and it is always followed by an assault on its sufficiency. And we, see, we have seen that in the 19th and 20th centuries. There's been a tremendous assault on the integrity of God's Word. It's not infallible. It's not inerrant. And liberal theology has uh, made its statements, and these have seeped into uh, conservative evangelical theology. But even when conservatives stood up for the infallibility and the inerrancy of God's Word, where they lost it was on the doctrine of sufficiency. They lost it because science comes along and says, well, that's great to tell us about the origins. The Bible's great to tell us about the cross and salvation. The Bible's good to tell us about our spiritual life. But from science, we know all of this information, and so we can have a better understanding of origins from science, and we don't have to pay attention to what the Bible says about science. And so we lost the battle of sufficiency. The Bible doesn't tell us enough, so we don't even have to listen to the parameters of creation. We'll go discover everything on our own. Then it went to sociology. And sociology has its ideological roots at the same time period as evolution. And sociology comes along and says man can understand its social relationships in marriage and family and cities and countries much better without paying attention to what the Bible says. That's just antiquated information. You don't need to pay attention to the Bible. That has nothing to do with uh, social organization or social structures. And then we have psychology. Psychology comes along and says you want to understand behavior problems and why you do the things the way you do them. You don't need to pay attention to the Bible. The Bible isn't sufficient. The Bible just tells you about spiritual things, not about the soul. And if you want to know about the soul, then you come to psychology. All of this is evil. All of this is deceptive. It is an attack on the sufficiency of Scripture, which is an indirect attack on the integrity of God. And when people buy into Darwinistic evolution or any compromise on the literal 24-hour, six-day, six 24-hour creation of Genesis 1, when they buy into sociology, when they buy into psychology, then they are completely immersed in the devil's thinking and they are under the control of the cosmic system. They are operating in the field of good and evil. The consequences of eating the fruit. And then in verse 6 we see the woman's response. She begins to really look on this fruit. It's attractive. And she looks at it and she sees that the fruit on the tree was good for food. That it was pleasant to the eyes. And a tree desirable to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave to her husband with her and ate. Now, I want to pay attention to a couple of words here. The first word is the word pleasant. This is the word in the Hebrew ta'ava, which has a basic root meaning of that which is pleasing or pleasant, has to do with longing for something, something that is desirous, and something that one would lust after. This word is used in the context of the Mosaic Law in Deuteronomy 5.21. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Incidentally, that's the second word we'll look at from, from uh, our passage in verse 6. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and you shall not desire your neighbor's house. See, they're both words that I'm talking about here. I'm going to focus on two words, not only pleasant, but the word desirable. The word desirable is the word that is translated covet in verse 21 of Deuteronomy so Deuteronomy 5 joins both of these together. And if you were a Jew reading this account that, that the woman looks on the tree and she sees it pleasant and desirable, the words that you're going to hear in Hebrew are words that speak of being covetous and lustful in the Mosaic Law. It's wonderful how this ties. We miss so much in the English. And the writer is using these words in a, such a sophisticated manner as he writes the episode in Deuteronomy, I mean in Genesis chapter 3. The second word is the word desirable, that she looks on the tree and sees that it's something desirable to make one wise. And this is the Hebrew word chamad, C-H-A-M-A-D, which means to lust, to covet, or to desire. And this word is also used in, Gen in uh, Exodus 20, verse 17, 
You shall not covet your neighbor's house. That's our word, kamad. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, also kamad, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. So as she looks on the tree, she begins to lust and covet, and this automatically culminates in eating the fruit. Now, this whole action is viewed really as one action. Don't go breaking it up yet, because remember, there's no sin yet except eating the fruit. Nothing is a sin yet. But once she starts down the road, it's an irreversible process. And once she begins to think that she can evaluate God, it's going to automatically culminate in her disobedience to the divine prohibition. Then in verse 6, she eats, and then notice how the writer ends it. It's very rapid. She says, she eats, and she she uh, took the fruit, she took, she ate, she gave to her husband, and he ate. It just wraps it up very quickly and very succinctly. There's no uh, drawing out of the details. Now, of course, many people want to look at this and try to interpret it in some kind of allegorical or spiritual manner, but we ought to see how the New Testament handles it. The New Testament does not look at this in an allegorical manner. We see how Paul handles it in many places, but one in particular is First Timothy 2, 12 to 14. And I do not permit a woman to teach her to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. So Paul is giving instructions on how the church should conduct itself in the first century, and his explanation isn't grounded in first century attitudes uh, towards the various sexes. He goes back to creation, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. That came from Genesis chapter 2. And then in verse 14, And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. So the Apostle Paul in the New Testament builds sex relationships, the relationships between the two sexes, on a literal understanding of Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. And then verse 7 gives us the consequences of the disobedience. The eyes of both of them were opened. This is spiritual death. See, they were to die immediately. They didn't die physically, but they died spiritually. The eyes of both of them were opened. They knew that they were naked. Now there's exposure, there's guilt, there's disgrace, there's shame, and they have to cover it up. Notice, God hasn't shown up yet, and they're already having to cover up the problem. They're immediately exposed, and they try to solve it on their own terms. This is man's problem. He doesn't understand the ultimate issue is always spiritual. We listened today to President Bush present a case to the to the uh, UN. Whatever you think about what's going on in the Middle East, whatever you think about whether we should be involved in war over there or not, whether it was a wise decision or foolish decision, is irrelevant if you haven't taken into account the spiritual dimensions of what's going on over there. This war is of Islam against the West is a war that is motivated by spiritual factors, by their theology. And if you don't take that into account, if you just look at it in the one-dimensional or two-dimensional view of visible physical history without taking that into account, you will not understand the issues. Their goal and the goal of Satan who is behind it is to destroy Christianity and to destroy the Jews and to destroy the West. And this is a fight to the death. This is crucial. If we don't do anything, we will be rolled over completely. Now, I don't know how it's going to fit into biblical prophecy or ultimate fulfillment of prophecy or anything like that, but we must understand that this war is not our fault. It has nothing to do with any failures on the part of Western uh, countries in Middle East policies. You can't blame it on the British imperial policy of the 19th century. You can't blame it on American diplomatic failures. You can blame it on one thing, and that is Satan is trying to destroy Israel, and Satan hates the Christians in the U.S. who are supporting Israel. And that's the reality. It doesn't matter what we do. The Islamic radicals are under the control of this false theology that comes right out of the pit of hell, and their desire is to destroy this nation. That is their goal. 
The human solution is always a failure. Adam and Eve tried to solve their problem by sewing fig leaves together, covering themselves. That never works. This is a picture of human good. There's nothing sinful in what they're doing, but it is an inadequate, farcical solution to the problem. The human solution is never a solution. The only solution is the divine solution, and the only solution is a complete and accurate understanding of the Word of God and an unshakable trust in the integrity of God. And it's only on this basis can, that man, the creature, can live as God intended. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening. We pray that you would challenge us with the things that we've studied. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.